beginning in verse 6, tells us this. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. But he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood, after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Father, we Pause to just pray for your special grace in this time as we continue now to worship, Lord, as we've sang and fellowshiped and prayed. We offer this time to you as an act of worship as well, that we might have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church assembled this morning as we open this particular portion of the word of God. We ask as always, Lord, do what it takes to prepare us accordingly and we ask that you would speak now by your Spirit's ministry, that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your Spirit and your power communicating things to each and every one of our hearts. And we pray this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The word warfare is defined as follows. Military operations amongst enemies where it is also defined, struggle, conflict, and battle between two entities. When you look up the word warfare, it implies in a secondary sense involving any activity undertaken to weaken or to destroy another. And I tell you this morning that the longest existing form of warfare and the most common routine form of warfare is spiritual warfare. 
It's not chemical warfare. It's not biological warfare. It's not cyber warfare. It's not conflict between nations on the earth. It is spiritual warfare that is the longest existing form of warfare that has always been going on, and it is the most common form of warfare that we see taking place. Warfare in the realm of the spirit, where the devil himself and all of his demons undertake activity to weaken and to destroy, to weaken and to destroy human lives, to weaken and destroy the plans and the purposes of God, the ministry of his spirit, families, marriages, relationships, whatever, we can go on in infinitum. And our text in front of us this morning describes this very reality of spiritual warfare very clearly. And I think it is very prudent for us to pay attention and to take heed and to learn from the things that are in front of us here. Now, to bring us into verse 6 where we're at this morning as a backdrop, remember as we started chapter 12 looking at verses 1 through 5, we mentioned that John, as he's receiving this revelation spiritually from God, that his focus is being directed back and forth from the spiritual realm in heaven and seeing that which is going on in the heavenly realm, and then his focus will be taken back to things happening down upon the earth. And he's clearly seeing all throughout the book of Revelation we've seen so far that what's happening in the realm of the spirit, what may be happening in the heavenly realm was directly influencing things that were going on on the earthly realm, in the physical realm here on this earth. And his focus is kind of shifted back and forth. But one thing is evident that whatever was happening in the realm of the spirit was directly influencing what was happening in the physical and the temporal realm. Now, we saw in the first five verses that really John was basically kind of being almost taken back in time. And as he was sort of in the spirit, taken back in time, he was seeing things there signifying the efforts of the devil trying to stop and trying to destroy the Messiah, the Savior, God's Son, who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, from being born on the earth. And John was seeing there, signifying things, how the devil, the dragon, was working to try and stop particularly trying to destroy the nation of Israel from their existence and from their purpose as God's chosen people group to be the ones to give physical birth to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he would enter into this world as a man to provide salvation as the promised Savior. And John saw that though regardless of the spiritual warfare that God's son was still born just as planned. And though the devil tried to thwart that by destroying the nation of Israel historically, ever since they were the promised nation to give birth to the Messiah, that regardless, God still brought to pass the birth of his son, that Jesus lived out his sinless life. He then died the substitutional and sacrificial death upon the cross, making payment for our sins. He then rose back from among the realm of the dead the third day, victoriously and has ascended back victoriously to the right hand of God the Father, back to his throne from whence he originally came before he entered the earth. And he is now there interceding on behalf of you and I as our Lord victorious. And there is coming a day 
when he, John saw as well, his destiny ultimately is that he will return back to this earth in his second coming where he will rule with enforced righteousness upon this earth as he sets up his kingdom on this planet after his return. Now, between verses 5 and verse 6, where we pick up this morning, there is, it seems to be, in this vision that John's seeing, sort of a historical time gap between verses 5 and verse 6, which we may often refer to as the age of the church or the age of grace, which we know the age of the church, what you and I are experiencing now, we've learned from prior chapters in Revelation, the age of the church will culminate or end in this event we often refer to as the rapture. Described in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where all believers, born-again believers, the church, the Bible tells us, will instantaneously be caught up to meet the Lord in the air as he removes us from this planet and the church safely removed from this planet after that has happened, we'll then initiate this time period we've been seeing and talking a lot about, this seven-year period of tribulation that will be happening down upon this earth for all the inhabitants left upon this earth who did not receive Jesus and the salvation that he offered. And during that seven-year period of tribulation that will happen on this earth, once the church is removed into heaven, God will be doing a few specific things. First of all, as we've been seeing in our study in Revelation, he will in righteousness, in complete just wrath, he will be judging humanity left behind on the planet for their rejection of his son and the salvation that he offered and their rebellion to God. God also during the tribulation will be uniquely working among the nation of Israel. There is one time period, a seven-year time period, and I encourage you to familiarize yourself with Daniel chapter 9, very important chapter, and according to Daniel 9 and other places we know, there is one seven-year period left in which God will uniquely be working amongst the nation of Israel as predicted and accomplishing certain things, completing a process with them. That's why this time is often called the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, or it's also at times, according to Daniel 9, referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, because we know, according to Daniel 9, that 69 of those weeks will have already been accomplished, but there is one seven-year time period that is left where God will be working among Israel. Now, during the time of the tribulation, we know there will also be the rise of this one-world government and a demonically inspired global ruler who we often call the Antichrist. We'll see him in our next chapter, chapter 13, the beast. And initially, the Antichrist, this global ruler, will offer a peace treaty or a covenant with the nation of Israel specifically, allowing them to rebuild their temple. But then halfway through that time period, halfway through the seven years, he will then reveal his true colors. He will break the covenant that he made with the Jews. He will enter into their rebuilt temple and proclaim himself to be God and demand that he be worshipped at the threat of loss of life or the full venomous hatred of this demonically inspired man, the Antichrist. Which brings us now to our text this morning as a backdrop with those things understood 
to verse 6, kind of when that historical gap brings us now to what's described in verse 6. Now, let me briefly say before we jump in, our last study, we took time, remember, to identify these two personages, which we will see again, the woman and the dragon. The woman we saw last time represents the nation of Israel, as we'll see her described again. The dragon represents the devil, which, of course, verse 9 specifically tells us anyway. But look with me again as our text opens in verse 6. We're told, then the woman, knowing we're talking about the nation of Israel, then the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should, they should feed her there 1,200, or excuse me, 1,000, yes, 200 in 60 days. So John sees next in his vision here the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, fleeing now out into the wilderness area for a three and a half year time period to a specific location that the Bible tells us here has already been prepared by God that he knows that they will be going to in order to both protect the nation of Israel and to care for them while they're there in hiding. He sees them fleeing out during this time period, and we know that this point will be midway through the seven-year tribulation period, and it will then last the remaining half of that seven-year period. You notice the reference there that they will be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, in a 30-day month, which is what they used then, as you equate that out, it comes out to a three-and-a-half-year period. So this will be happening during the last three and a half years of the seven-year period of tribulation. And we know this fleeing out into the wilderness will be directly connected, according to other scriptures, to that time when the Antichrist turns against the Jews and takes away from them this right to worship in their rebuilt temple. Again, Daniel 9.27 tells us that the Antichrist will confirm a peace covenant for a week, referring to a seven-year period, allowing them to rebuild their temple, to reinstitute their sacrifices and offerings. But then it says that he shall then, in the middle of the week, in the middle of a seven-year period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and bring an abomination spiritually by his actions and so doing that, demanding that he be worshipped instead of them worshiping the way that they were. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, tells us the Antichrist will oppose and exalt himself over everything called God and that is worship, so that he himself sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, those actions were what will lead to this venomous hatred of the Antichrist towards the Jewish people as he opposes them in this way, which will lead to them then fleeing for their life for safety out into the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus predicted these very things that will be coming to pass. Listen to Jesus' words as he predicted it during his time on earth. Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's a reference to the Antichrist and his actions here, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, referencing Daniel 9, standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Then, at that moment, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. 
But woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies in those days, because it will be harder to move quickly. You know that if you have a baby or you're pregnant, right? Slows you down a little bit. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Those would be difficult times as well. For there will be great tribulations such as not been since the beginning of the world until that time. So Jesus foreseeing that the Antichrist would unleash this diabolical hatred and persecution like a monster against the Jewish people in his behavior in demonic rage trying to persecute and destroy their lives foresaw and encouraged in advance that the Jews would flee, that they would get away, go out to a place in hiding in the wilderness. Now, many believe Verse 6, this reference to this place that they have gone to, which it says there, notice it says, which was prepared by God. Many believe that this is the reference to the ancient rock city Petra that exists not too far from where Israel is and that this will be this ancient rock city. You can Google it. You can look it up, see pictures and images of it, that this will be where the Jews will flee to and hide and be protected and preserved during this time when they flee, that God has uniquely through history caused that city to be built and prepared, knowing it will be the place of refuge that his people will be able to go to and to kind of be preserved there. Now, one way or the other, wherever they go, the amazing thing above all else is that God already knowing what will happen to his people in his providence already prepares in advance way, way before historically knowing what's going to come to pass that God in his providence prepares what would be necessary in the hardest time of their lives for them to be preserved, for them to be sustained, and so that they would not be destroyed because of the hardship that they went through. You know, how beautiful to realize that God in his loving providence today already knows what's happening to us tomorrow, a month down the road, six months, a year down the road, and God in his providence, proviso, seeing ahead of time, knows what's coming and how God works always accordingly to prepare so that when that time comes, and sometimes it's a time of hardship, he already prepares in advance to make sure that we're taken care of when that time comes to pass. How amazing. And it says here, they go to this place prepared by God that he has ready for them to be shielded and to be protected in the midst of these things. So as the Antichrist is unleashing now chaos on the earth, as our verses go on, we see now that heaven erupts in sort of a cosmic warfare at the same time. Verse 7 says, and war broke out in heaven. Imagine that, war in heaven. Should war ever happen? War even happens in heaven. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but verse 8 says, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon, verse 9, was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So notice, the devil here, we're told, makes one final effort, if you would, of all-out rebellion against God's throne. It says a spiritual war, verse 7, breaks out in heaven, notice, amongst the angelic beings. 
Now take note here. The devil does not in any way launch a war against the father, against the son, because he's smart enough to know that is utterly futile that they are much greater than him. Jesus already triumphed over Satan in his work upon the cross. But the war here transpires amongst the holy angels of God and the unclean, defiled, demonic spirits. Between them, they engage in this cosmic heavenly war. It says here that Michael, the archangel we know him as, the one who's one of the high-ranking angels among God's angels, and his angels that function, it seems, kind of serving under Michael's authority as the high-ranking angel, it says that they fight with the devil and his angels. That is, these other unclean demonic spirits, the angels who became defiled when they followed the devil in his original rebellion against God, Again, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 describe the fall of Satan when he went from being a high-ranking holy angel to being the devil, a demonic, defiled spirit when he rebelled against God. And remember we saw last time in chapter 12, verse 4, that when the devil fell, it says he drew away one-third of the stars of heaven, one-third of the angelic realm, it seems, were drawn away in Satan's rebellion Two-thirds remained holy angels and faithfulness to God. And these two different spiritual entities and armies are now clashing in this cosmic warfare. But notice that even as Satan cannot overcome God, the Father dethroned Satan originally. Remember, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Then Jesus, when he came in his earthly body living out his redemptive plan through his life, death, and resurrection. He again triumphed over Satan through the cross. He broke the power of Satan through his redemptive work. Now notice we see here that even Michael and his angels, they now triumph over Satan with God's authority once again. Though the devil and his angels fought against Michael and the holy angels of God, it tells us, look at it, verse 8 there, that though they fought hard, that the demonic realm did not prevail, nor was there found a place for them in heaven any longer. So they did not succeed in the warfare. They were defeated. They were conquered. They were subdued. And now they will be banished from entering or having access to the realm of heaven any longer. Notice there, very important, I have it circled in my Bible, it says there in verse 8, they could not have access there any longer. Take notice of that, any longer. That's an important reminder there to us. Remember, right now, the devil, at this time historically, does still have some access to the realm of heaven. Though Satan was cast down and removed from his position of high rank, Originally, as an angelic being, as he was created from, he was cast down and dethroned from his position. But Job chapter 1 clearly reveals to us that right now, historically, Satan still has some access to the heavenly realm where he opposes humanity, where he accuses mankind before the throne of God regarding their failures. We'll see more of this further down in our text. But at this point, historically, the outcome of the spiritual warfare that will happen at this point midway through the tribulation as the end result of this particular cosmic warfare, verse 9 emphasizes a clear change comes at this point. 
Verse 9, look what it says repetitiously. Three times the Holy Spirit drives it home. It says, the great dragon was now cast out. The serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So verse 8, no longer was a place in heaven available to them any longer because they were cast out, cast to the earth. They were cast out. Again, God's trying to make it very evident here that a change happens that unlike prior times and even the period we're living in now where Satan has some degree of access still to the heavenly realm, at this point, the result of this warfare is he now is no longer able to ever have any access to the realm of heaven. And he is now at this point, we might say, confined to only operate on the earth. He's now at this point, midway through the tribulation, banished from heaven, confined to the earth. And notice also, if you would, in verse 9, the Holy Spirit gives to us some pretty clear description of the devil in regards to how he functions. Now, if you want to succeed to defeat someone in battle, in a competition, conflict, whatever, it's good to study your enemy, right? To a degree. That's why the devil, understand, is very successful against humanity because he studies humanity. He's been studying humanity from the Garden of Eden, and he knows what works. But it's wise for us to some degree, if we don't want to be defeated by the devil, to understand what the devil is like and how he functions, that we're not defeated. And verse 9 tells us even just a few descriptive terms of the devil. Again, we get this phrase from the earlier chapter. He's described, verse 9, as the great dragon. So that pictures the devil like a fire-breathing monster, like a great dragon who terrifies and wants to harm and destroy humanity. And we should realize this is one of the MOs of the devil, is that the devil seeks to be someone who terrifies people and stimulates fear and anxiety and terror. He's like a great fire-breathing monster, and he works in ways to terrorize humanity, to seek to bring fear and anxiety like a great dragon would if you met a great fire-breathing dragon. He's also referred to there in verse 9. Notice there it says also as he's called the serpent of old. Now that's an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3, right? When he first shows up in the word of God as a serpent. But notice he's called here the serpent of old. The idea is he's a well-experienced old snake. He is a well-experienced old snake. And like a sneaky snake in subtle ways, he is poisoning the minds of his victims. He is poisoning the lives of people to damage, to ruin, and to wreck lives. And this is one of the ways that Satan works. Like a deadly, sneaky snake, he is trying to poison people to poison the way that people think, to poison people's perspectives, to bring damage and ruin to lives. He's also referred to there as both the devil and Satan. The word devil is a term in the Greek that speaks of being double-tongued, diabolos. It's literally a term that speaks of being cast down by verbal criticism or accusation. So this describes this phrase of, of the devil, how he's a slanderer. And that this is what he does. 
Through slander and verbal accusation and criticism, he brings harm to humanity. And the word Satan that's used there is a term that literally is a word that means adversary, opposer or enemy. And this is the way that Satan works. He works to oppose and to hinder and stop. Paul says when he writes to the Thessalonians, I was seeking to come to you and minister to you, but Satan hindered me. And this is one of the ploys of the enemy. He works in a way spiritually to bring hindrance. He tries to hinder God's will, to hinder God's purpose, to hinder what God is doing in your life. He seeks to try and hinder and oppose people from coming to Jesus Christ in salvation. And this is one of the ways that Satan works. He brings hindrances. He tries to stop what would be good, what would be God's will, and what would be the thing that the Spirit of God is trying to do. Notice, however, I believe what is the chief work of Satan among humanity in verse uh, 9 there. It tells us of the devil that he is the one, verse 9, who deceives the whole world. If we were to say, what is the chief thing? Put all those other things together. This is the chief effort of the devil to bring deception, to deceive mankind, to deceive people, to spread lies to spread confusion, to get people to accept those lies. And look, can I remind us this morning, a key aspect of being deceived is you don't realize that you're deceived. Somehow we miss that part. The whole crux of being deceived is you don't even know you are deceived. You think you're right when you're completely wrong. You think that you're on the right track when you are completely misguided and sailing for shipwreck. And the devil works in a way like a sneaky, subtle little serpent where he poisons the minds of people. He gets people to believe lies, to believe wrong things in a way where he might deceive people so that they're blinded and they're misguided. And boy, he does this effectively in so many different ways. This is the greatest work, folks, understand, of the devil on this planet is to deceive people that are in this world. And he does this in all different ways. He deceives the unbeliever, the unsafe person. The Bible tells us in Corinthians that the God of this age, Satan, blinds the minds of those who do not believe. So people who choose to refuse Jesus Christ, they hear the gospel message, they reject getting saved, in their unbelief, they give the devil an authority to blind them further spiritually. I don't understand. I mean, I presented it so clearly. Why would they not want to get saved? Because in their choice to not believe, the God of this age blinds their minds so they continue to not be able to see. And it's a very real reality that there is a blindness that happens. I think, sadly, that one of the ways that the devil is very effective as well is doing this with people who are blinded to the reality that they think they're fine and they're not saved. There may be those of you that are sitting here in this room this morning. You were raised in the church. You were raised with a Christian parent. You've heard the gospel an infinitum no many times, and you can push the buttons and pull the levers and been sitting in a church, and the reality is that doesn't mean that you're born again. That doesn't mean you truly know Jesus Christ. It's often been said before, I think it was Tozer, I forget exactly who it was, that religion is the great opiate of humanity. It's religious activity and religion and a perception of a religious life 
That is the thing that is numbing the soul of so many human beings thinking, I'm okay with God. I'm, I'm a Christian. I got Christian parents. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. And, and they're not truly born again of the Spirit. They really don't know Jesus. Probably one of the greatest deceptions on this earth that happens. It's terrifying to think about that reality. One of the greatest deceptions of the devil, I believe, at times. He's, you know, he gets a Christian blinded. He blinds the mind and the thinking pattern of a Christian who's so certain that they're right with the Lord and what they're doing in the reality is the devil is just manipulating their mind, getting them to buy into a lie and getting them to live in a blinded way as a Christian and, and confusing them in their reality. The devil is certainly working to deceive the whole world and that he's influencing culture morally. As you watch the moral degradation of our country and of our world, there is a spiritual undertone to all of that. First John chapter 5 tells us that, that the whole world lies under the sway, the influence of the wicked one. So as you see perversity and insanity and all the things that are happening with moral deterioration, and you think, what in the world? That's the work of the devil, deceiving the whole world, getting people to believe that these things are acceptable or appropriate or that we need to change this you know, idea of morality. And, and this is just a work of the devil. And I think another work of the devil as he deceives the whole world is I believe the devil is into destroying relationships. He sought to destroy man's relationship with God, and he works constantly to try and destroy relationships among human beings, to get people misguided in their relationships, to cause relational issues, and then to keep people in division and animosity and unforgiveness. And I tell you, at Christians at times can be just as guilty of this as unsaved people. Oh, I forgive her. I forgive him. You're saying that but you're not walking that out biblically. And there is a difference. And so again, we need to be careful. Again, remember Jesus said that a house divided won't stand. And the devil is a divider. This is what he tries to do. And so we have to be very, very careful and realize this is the work of the devil. We have to realize what's going on at times, how our enemy is trying to deceive it says in many different ways, and at this stage in the tribulation, this great deceiver of the world is cast down now to the earth. He's now confined to the earth, and that's why verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying up in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. So notice, heaven erupts sort of in a, a celebratory moment at this next stage of the devil's punishment as he's been sentenced and executed once again as the complete salvation plan of God and the kingdom of our God is ushering into a closer culmination. And it's at this point, the way these things have happened, verse 10 says, it was because of the work of the power of his Christ, his Messiah, his Savior, that has come. Now, that word power there that's used in the text, it's not our word dunamis from the Greek that we see in other places. It's actually the Greek term exousia, which speaks of authority or power that stems directly from relationship to being on a throne. So the idea here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, because of his throne of rulership, exercises his authoritative power to now once again further advance the punishment of Satan 
where now he's not only cast from his position in heaven, but now he has been banished altogether from heaven, cast down another time, confined to the earth. Now, let me just briefly say before we move on, the Bible describes actually four falls of Satan. Four falls of Satan, really the idea is he's punished worse as the sentence increases each time. The first fall of Satan we most all know is his original fall from his high-ranking position in heaven where he's dethroned and he becomes defiled spiritually. And then midway through the tribulation, which is what we're studying here, a second fall, he's cast out of heaven forever and he's now banished to the earth and confined to only operate on the earth for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Then when Jesus returns, thirdly, to set up his kingdom, Satan, we'll see, will be cast down once again into a bottomless pit for a thousand years where he will be retained and incarcerated during the time of the kingdom age as Christ reigns. And then at the end of that thousand years, fourthly, Satan will be cast down one last time at the great white throne judgment where he will be forever sentenced finally to the lake of fire where he's tormented. But what is the devil, if you would, again, also doing right now in the realm of the spirit? Well, what does verse 10 draw our attention to? It says that he is the one who is the accuser of our brethren who accuse them before God day and night. Notice, this is what Satan is doing amongst the realm of the spirit. He is the accuser bringing accusations about the failures of humanity before God with very cruel criticisms. And may I say, very accurate information. <laughs> he doesn't have to make stuff up to have accusations against any person in humanity. We give him plenty of plenty of evidence. And he's there identifying our errors and our sins, pointing out our shortcomings as people, indicating our spiritual failures and the ways that we're not faithful to God or we compromise in this area, indicating our unworthiness. And notice how persistent Satan is in his accusations. It says he is doing such night and day. The idea is that's trying to draw attention. He don't take a break. He don't take a vacation. He don't take a holiday. Constantly, continually, he is there like a continual prosecuting attorney pointing out the evidence of the failures of mankind. But look, thankfully, we know the word of God teaches that our Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of our Father. And 1 John chapter 2, Romans chapter 8 tells us that Jesus is advocating as our eternal defense attorney. And how wonderful to know that. Don't matter how good of a prosecuting attorney Satan is, that Jesus, our advocate, is there defending us, his very life accomplishment, his wounds, that he can show as evidence of our innocence and forgiveness, his words, he's continually interceding with the sure testimony of our innocence through his work on our behalf. But look, this is important, folks, to understand about spiritual warfare, because when you are struggling, and if you haven't, you will, with thoughts in your mind at times or feelings that you go through of condemnation over your failures, things you did in your past, maybe some way that you've even failed since you've been a Christian, times that you find yourself maybe just in your thoughts feeling bad, feeling like you're worthless, feeling like you're an utter failure, feeling like your life is whatever, condemning, 
oftentimes that is manipulation in your mind by the accusing, lying voice of the devil. Because this is what he does. Through harsh criticism and accusation, it's part of his business. And we have to know what's happening in those moments. If you're going to succeed in that mental warfare, if you're going to succeed in not giving over to your emotions, you must know in the spirit that this is spiritual warfare going on. That's what I'm battling with here. And in that moment, you have to do what the word of God says, which is submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In those moments, we must understand what's happening. This is a part of the spiritual warfare that happens. Also, we should know that when people are accusing us wrongly or you're being criticized by someone unfairly, oftentimes that's spiritual warfare. And Satan is just using the mouth of a willing person. And recognize as well, let me take both sides of that. When we find our own mouths being prone to be very critical and condemning other people and criticizing other people around us, no, to some degree, in those moments, we are letting our own mind and mouth be manipulated by the devil to basically fulfill some of his business and some of his activity. And we need to recognize that, be willing to repent of that, and ask the Lord to change our speech and the way that we may be behaving. Now, in light of the devil being that accuser who slanders, who... Manity constantly, look what verse 11 says. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. This gives really some wonderful practical insight and advice how to overcome, if you would, spiritual warfare and the devil's assault. He will attack spiritually. Warfare is a spiritual reality. It will constantly be going on. Yet God's heart is that we not be defeated in spiritual warfare. God wants us to overcome. God wants us to be victorious. And here in verse 11, the Holy Spirit gives to us really three ways that we can triumph really any Christian at any point in human history when this spiritual warfare begins to take place. First thing he tells us, the way we overcome is by the blood of the lamb. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by us understanding clearly, knowing what the word of God teaches and believing and receiving, then fully relying upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. The blood represents his death, of course. And by knowing what Jesus did scripturally, we can overcome Satan's attacks, though we are guilty sinners, though we are going to hear our own condemning voice or the devil's condemning voice or someone else's condemning voice, that though we are unworthy and deserve punishment and separation from God, we know that Jesus' sinless life was offered as our substitute to be acceptable to God. And then Jesus' sacrificial death was our substitute. He took the punishment. He took the death sentence. He bled out his life so that his blood could cleanse us from all sin. And then he rose in victory, and he is who assures our acceptance with God and our forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5 says in verse 21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. Jesus took our sin and the punishment for it, and Jesus in exchange gives to us as we come in a unified relationship with him, he gives us his righteousness. 
his righteous life so that we stand before God forgiven and made righteous so we can have acceptance with him. The second thing we're told is a great help in overcoming in spiritual warfare, not just the blood of the lamb that we can plead and rely upon, is he says the word of their testimony. Or we might say the word of our own testimony. That is your own personal story of an experience that you've had with the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian genuinely this morning, you know what the Lord did in your life personally. You have a story. You have a story of the way in which you came to the realization that you, like every other person, were a guilty, lost, desperate sinner. And Jesus got your attention and revealed to you the condition of your own soul, and you believed in what he did and that he did it for you, and you responded to it, and you have a story, a testimony that is real. It's real to you, and it is factual because you know what the Lord did in your life, and see, by sharing that, that defeats the lying voice of the devil. It drives back the enemy's accusations, and it disarms his effectiveness to help us overcome. And when you share your testimony, it doesn't just help you. It honestly liberates the devil's stronghold and other people that are in darkness, because when you share your testimony, what Jesus did for you, it shines light into the jail cell of other people living in darkness. And this is how Satan is overcome. The blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony. And thirdly, he says they also did not love their lives unto death. And here the picture is understanding eternal realities and valuing eternal realities more than one's own earthly life. Rather than clinging to the earthly life and the survival on this planet, they realize, look, in that day in the tribulation, many who accept Christ, most of those who accept Christ, are going to do so at the cost of the losing of their own life. But they said, look, what's the worst that could happen if Satan kills us? We just enter into glory. We just gain heaven. And see, look, for us, we need to realize as Satan tries to manipulate us and get us to fall in love with this life and this earthly life, it's one of his greatest deceptions. Oh, cling to this life. It's about this life. Live for this life. Enjoy your best life. Be comfortable. Indulge the world. And he gets us to fall in love with this worldly life to the degree where we aren't factoring in that we're eternal people and that we're called to an eternal destiny. Look, we need to be careful. One of the ways that we can overcome the devil is to not let him deceive us by loving our earthly life and saying, you know what? I'm willing to die to myself experientially or literally because I don't live for this life. I live for Jesus, and I want to live for the will of God, and I'm going to eternity, and that is one of the greatest ways often we can defeat the enemy. Now, in light of Satan being banished from heaven, verse 12 says, therefore rejoice, O heaven, you who dwell in them. You can imagine, no more do we got to hear that guy's voice anymore. Sick of that accuser. Finally, thank you, he is gone forever. But notice, but woe to the inhabitants still down upon the earth. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So notice those dwelling on earth for that final three and a half years that Satan is now confined to the realm of the earth, they should be lamenting and be terrified because now this serpent of old being further defeated, it says, is filled with great wrath and he knows, it says verse 12, that he only has a short time left to keep trying to destroy humankind. Now, look, let me just say, that is a bad combination. A proud, rebellious, experienced demon 
being confined to the earth, consumed with great wrath, like a powder because he's a sore loser, going all around, watching the time clock at the end of the game, winding out and realizing I only have a short time left to keep wreaking havoc and trying to destroy humanity. Boy, I'm so glad I will not be on earth during that time as he's filled with wrath and rage, working overtime in the final period of humanity. Verse 13 says, Now when Satan, the dragon, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he then persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, who we know is a reference to Jesus. So in great wrath, the devil again, as in times past historically, notice, directs his venomous hatred and all of his persecution towards the nation that gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel. Look, the devil hates Israel, folks, and we have to understand this, because not only did they give birth to Jesus' human life, which led to the provision of salvation for mankind's sin, which will also Jesus' earthly life and work will culminate in Jesus' return back to the earth as victorious king, which he will then further sentence Satan and set up his kingdom. But also he hates Israel because all the prophecies regarding the Lord Jesus's return back to the earth are all directly connected to the existence of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and them being in their homeland. And so because of this, this is why there has always been and will always continue to be this hatred and persecution of Israel and the Jews as God's chosen people. We have to grasp, somebody does on this planet, God forbid, it is not political. It is not a political thing, this hatred, this anti-Semitic spirit and actions on this planet. It is satanically inspired. Oh, that's so strong. No, the whole world's deceived. So the world, in their reasoning, thinks it's other things. It's satanic. It is a satanic deception manipulating the minds and passions and ideas of people because Satan hates the nation of Israel because of all that they bring to pass regarding the plan of God. And this will just intensify so as the devil in his hatred, verse 14, carries on, it says he was given the woman, excuse me, she, Israel, two wings of a great evil, an illusion from the Old Testament of God's deliverance of his people, that she might fly out into the wilderness, as we saw, to her place where she's nourished for a time, times and a half a time. That's Old Testament language. It speaks of a year, two years and a half a year. Again, three and a half years from the presence of of the serpent. So Israel, spiritually directed by God out to this secure location where God will protect them for three and a half years and he will shield them. But why there? Verse 15 says, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood, metaphorical language here, something like a flood after the woman that he might cause her, Israel, to be carried away by this flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So the devil commands some type of a mighty flood to go and to try and drown or de destroy and carry away Israel. Now the question becomes, is this a literal flood of water? Some people think it is, that the devil will command somehow 
with his authority spiritually, and some type of a flood of water will rush into the rock city of Petra, trying to drown and destroy the nation of Israel. But God will then somehow, as it says there, notice, doesn't matter. It says God will cause the earth to help Israel. So maybe God does something in a, another miracle where the earth opens and the water is diverted. Other people think this flood could speak of the sending forth of a massive army directed by the Antichrist to go and chase down and attack the Jews there, wherever they're hiding. And if that's the case, God miraculously defeats that flood of an army by raising up some way, using creation to give a miraculous deliverance and warfare for the nation of Israel. When you look in the Old Testament, there are times when an invasion of an army is described like a flood. So it's possible it could be a literal army that goes after them. Certainly reminds us of Isaiah 59, where the Bible says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. And so the Lord here intervenes, miraculously protects his people once again. Our text concludes saying, and then the dragon was enraged. Notice that term, enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, the remainder of the Jews, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you might say like an obsessed, incensed spiritual terrorist, Satan is enraged now at this point, and he goes again after the offspring of Israel, the Jews, intensely. Now, let me make a final application here. One final note, please. Who the devil particularly is enraged towards and launches warfare and destruction against, you see what verse 17 says? It's those who were keeping the commandments of God and have a testimony of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that's important to recognize because the devil is enraged and will bring constant warfare against those you and I included, who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ and who are people who live according to the word of God. This will be his constant target of enraged wrath and warfare. And it is so important for us to recognize that. Boy, today we see in this passage certainly tactics used by the devil. But we also realize it is the heart of God that we be able to overcome in the power of the Spirit, that we not be defeated by the devil, but that through the power of Christ and his Spirit and his Word, that we would overcome in all of our lives. Let's stand together.